Before we open God's word, will you join me in a word of prayer? God, I ask with my whole heart that this morning as we open your word, God, that your spirit would be able to say what I cannot. That through the power of your presence and the wisdom of your truth, and the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, that we as your people hear your word this morning and we lean on it to find a life and we depend on it for our hope and we trust in it to be the words that lead us to better relationship with you, to better relationship with one another to understand what it means when you called us to perfection and when you tell us to live righteous. God, we ask this morning that you would illuminate the areas in our lives that fall short of what the glory of your son Jesus Christ made possible. Speak to us now. May our thoughts and our time together be as a sweet aroma unto you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So through this series of the Sermon on the Mount, I have affirmed an age-old rule that I came to know when I was a teenager, that it is a lot easier to be a Christian if you don't read the Bible than it is if you read it. As I have shared with you every week while we've been going through this, the intention of Jesus was not to... It was not to set straight the worldly lost people and to preach them into submission to the ways of God, but Jesus was settling down to speak to the church people. He was teaching the people who claimed the righteousness of God and the title of being God's people, and he was teaching them that God's law was not something meant to be observed just for the sake of other people's affirmation. We're in the the part of the Sermon on the Mount, as I shared with you last week, called the Antitheses, where Jesus would take an Old Testament law or an Old Testament commandment, and he would expound upon it to get the the people listening uh, to hear the deeper message of what God was trying to accomplish in the life of the people. Um, And that's what Jesus did throughout his ministry. Nine times out of 10, when Jesus spoke, you could find his words directly pulled from somewhere in the Old Testament. But he spoke so that he could demonstrate in a real tangible way how God's law uh, was always concerned with the motives of our hearts. Throughout the Old Testament, when Israel was commanded to do something, It was always their response to God that determined the outcome of their endeavors. It usually wasn't their actions, and we could see where usually their actions were dependent upon what was actually present in the lives of the ones making the decision as opposed to the actions themselves that brought Israel all their trouble. So we know that God is a God of order and everything that he created And everything he spoke into existence, 
He did so for a specific purpose. There was a goal in mind. There is no such thing as chaos in God's design. If you remember, chaos was what was present before God began to work. And after God began to speak things into place and set things where they should be, chaos was gone away. So Jesus Christ came in the midst of a world that because of sin's presence had returned to chaos. And our message as Christians is that Jesus comes to speak peace into the life of chaos. But the more and more that I get into God's word, I realize just how prevalent chaos is in the life of every person. The people that you and I would consider uh, righteous people, that we would consider good people, chaos is still frantically trying to get a foothold in order to keep that person from understanding the order and the peace that God has come to establish through Jesus Christ. So we know that God's law was meant to bring order to the heart of a person, but it had been misunderstood and it had been seen only as the outward things that are done. In society, when we put laws in place, we, we do so in order that everybody might live in harmony together. What laws do is they create order, they create a system, they create function. Laws only work for people that are willing to live according to those laws. And it is the same is true with God's law. But unlike our civic law that can be broken and sometimes people can get away from it, God's law is set and is already determined and cannot be broken and it cannot be moved. And it's not something that is meant strictly for the sake of civic organization or for people organizing with one another, but it is meant to bring a person's heart back in line with the God who created it. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, God tells Samuel that though people look at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And as Jesus is demonstrating here in these uh, points on the Sermon on the Mount, there's evidence of a true born-again faith if a person's heart seeks to understand and depends on the Holy Spirit's working, that they might align themselves with God's law. The youth, uh, we've been talking on Wednesday nights out of the book of John, and we just spoke about Nicodemus, this very wise teacher of the law who has committed his whole life to teaching the law of God and being the example of what God's people are supposed to be. And he approaches Jesus at night, and Jesus throws him for a loop when he begins to explain to this righteous person, this person who has committed themselves to following the law, that everything he has done on the outside is futile if it has not happened on the inside. And so when Jesus speaks and he talks about the adherence to God's word, I shared with you last week that it creates a storm of emotions, moods of protest where God says something, we don't really care to hear it. Or maybe it inspires us to quest for righteousness on a personal level. We see something, we read something, we're like, I want that, that's what I want. But also, and probably for most of us, it 
creates a sense of shame. Because when we read God's word and we see the life and the example that Jesus Christ has called us to, we realize that we fall very, very short of what we have available to us. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me and we're going to read our passage for today. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, resist an evil person. And if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer to them the other also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give them your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. So in verse 38 and 42, uh, Jesus is again pulling from the Old Testament law found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. uh, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We've heard that before. In public schools you're taught that as the code of Hammurabi. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It is as old as human history itself. If somebody does something, uh, in physics we call it an action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's kind of like that. Um, So Jesus is pulling from this age-old law, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But instead of giving a civics lesson, instead of trying to get them to understand um, the law that they have known their whole lives, what Jesus is wanting to do is he's wanting to illustrate a depth of the change of heart that the gospel message has come to establish in the life of disciples. So he takes what seems like a very, very extreme example and instead he takes it and he turns it 180 degrees the opposite way. So the law, a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye and a foot for a foot, originally prohibited formal execution of an overly severe punishment. So if somebody stole a chicken, you couldn't go burn down their farm. If somebody punched you in the face, you couldn't go and steal all their goats. You know, we got to keep it somewhat normal here. Um, And so if the punishment didn't fit a crime, you couldn't do it. But also it was to keep people from turning into Batman and Superman and going and exacting their own vengeance. That's not always a good thing, is it? Things can get out of hand very quick when people take matters into their own hands. So Jesus is pulling back to an example that the people would understand is meant for their good, is meant for their justice, is meant to uh, give fairness and cooperation. But he turns it around and he wants them to understand that even though sometimes we have a right to things in life, And even though the law of our culture and our society says that we are well within our rights to seek certain damages or to do things, we don't always have to pursue it. Because as a disciple will learn, as somebody of faith in Jesus Christ will learn, there's always a better way. Sometimes we don't see it that way, but there's always a better way. For Jesus, he wanted to show that a kindness that honors God is above retribution. How many of us think of those words when somebody does us wrong or when we're mad at somebody? A kindness that honors God is above retribution. Anybody in here guilty of that? After the fact? We can can acknowledge that after the fact. 
So in Jewish culture, if you were to slap somebody on the cheek, it was uh, the form of the highest insult. You would backhand them uh, across the cheek, and not only were you going to hurt them physically, but you are shaming them in front of the entire uh, group of people around you, and it is meant to humiliate a person just utterly. And apparently you did not do that unless you had very just cause because there were consequences uh, that were even more severe if you did that wrongfully. And that was that you would, um, you would get a double slap on the other cheek. So the person that you just humiliated would get to doubly humiliate you. That was, that was okay. That was hunky-dory. You could do that. But Jesus was teaching that because of this change of heart, that we don't seek vengeance even against humiliating things. The call of the gospel is to live so that relationships that we share with one another give the example of the community that God has established in his kingdom. Disciples live differently in order to break the cycle of sin. Action and reaction, everything is done for the sake of Jesus Christ's message. So when believers engage one another in the trading of insults, the outside world doesn't see the light of Christ. So if Christ has been established in your life and if you, you say that you believe and you've been born again, is an insult really that important? Did Jesus believe that insults were that important? He was mocked, he was scourged, he was beaten. And if you were a disciple, having answered Jesus' call to die to yourself and take up a cross, what then would an insult even accomplish? Throughout the entire time that he spoke and he taught and he preached, the main message of Jesus Christ was this. Point others to the hope that you have found. Show others the way to life that you have discovered. So Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, uses these examples from the law teaching church people. That is the you and I of the day. Because he wanted to point out a dangerous heart condition that many of us still struggle with. And I have stood up here and I have admitted to you that I have that issue, especially on I-40. But it's pride. One of the most dangerous things in the life of a Christian is the pride that we carry. We live in a country and in a world and a society that tells you that pride is the most important thing you have as an individual. That self-esteem, that confidence in yourself is what is going to get you through and is going to make you successful. But here we see that the example Jesus is saying is that pride is the very thing that keeps us from accountability. We're too proud to reach out to one another. We're too proud to accept correction. We're too proud to bring out our faults and our failures so that others might join with us and pray with us. Pride is what tells us that we're of more importance than the people around us. That people don't fit into our class of citizen. That people are less than us. They're below us because of their occupation or where they live or how they dress. Pride is where we get the sense that we are deserving 
of righteousness. Pride, when we walk into this building and it's all about us, the message better be what we want to hear, everything better be the way that I think it should be. So and so was late, I need to go set them straight. Pride. It is the very place from where people thinking that they don't have a need for God is found. So Jesus is approaching good church people. And he's saying, look at the law itself that was meant for your order as God's people. And if you are still failing to live into that law and to understand the law of that fullness, understand that you are never going to be righteous enough to be in the presence of God. And if we're not seeking to be in the presence of God in our faith, then why are we here? What are we hoping to accomplish if God is not our goal? What are we hoping will will happen in our lives if we are not seeking Jesus Christ to redeem the parts of us that sin has messed up? Verse 40, he uses the example of being sued in court. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give them your coat too. So unlike today, frivolous lawsuits were very rare in first century Israel. I don't know how they got away with not filing them. I'm sure somebody just looked at them and said no. But we don't do that today because it's a money market. But anyways, so the suit that was described here was probably one that was legitimate. And the person was probably going to win. So, So Jesus is telling his righteous people, people that thought they had it all figured out, that if you go to court and somebody's suing you and you know you're going to lose, there's still a way that you're supposed to act. Anybody like losing in court? Public defenders probably at most don't care. But you don't want to lose at court, do you? Because it costs you something. It's going to come with some kind of expense that you don't want to do. So Jesus was talking about if you get sued for your shirt. You ever heard the saying, uh, they're going to sue the shirt right off your back? This is where it came from. Isn't that cool? So anyways, in Jewish culture, uh, the shirt that somebody had was an undergarment. And it was usually like a, I think it was like one of those union suit type kind of things with the buttons on the flap in the back for the exhaust and all that. Um, But it was made from wool or linen and they were very valuable. Uh, Like people were proud of their underwear. I don't know why. But Jewish law um, would allow people to sue for these shirts Because you could actually get this. You could actually use your shirt for bartering or as for collateral for a payment. Can you imagine that? I'm going to offer you my my clothes as collateral for this herd of goats or this house. It didn't make sense to me either. But they were valuable. And so you could actually sue somebody for their shirt. Well, people began to get a little greedy. And debt collectors said, you know... Uh, Their shirt's not really as much as they owe, so we're going to sue for their coat, too. So there was a law that was established that a coat is beyond bounds because you take somebody's coat, they can't stay warm. A lot of people, when they're traveling, that's all they have for shelter. So Jesus is telling his group of church people, however, that if you are rightfully sued in court and they get the shirt off your back, 
That relationship that you have with that person, that example of Christ, that example of what God is doing to redeem is so important. You give them your coat too if it's necessary. So now Jesus is asking for a sacrifice that is going to have an effect on the person. He's saying don't just give as is convenient. Don't just work for the sake of somebody else as it fits into your schedule. But now he is saying to give even if it hurts. Because that relationship with that person is that important. Has anybody ever regarded anybody on this planet with that much care before? That we're willing to give even if it sacrifices So what we see again is Jesus demonstrating an importance of right relationships with others. That the attitude that we have with others is a direct connection of the way that our heart is attuned to God. And why do you think that is? God created us for community, for fellowship, To live together with one another so that we might experience him and his blessings. And when we allow things that are less than God's to come between us, then it directly affects the way that we turn to God. But also I think it's this. That if we hold other people at arm's length for the sake of self-preservation and self-promotion, how do you think we handle God? We keep him just close enough, like our lucky rabbit's foot that we talked about a while back. But we keep him far enough away where he can't really affect the things that we think we have now. So Jesus is pointing out to the people that think they got it all going on. That it's more important to be reconciled to the people around us than it is to be justified. We all want to be justified. We all want our side to be proven right. We all want people to hear us and to believe us. And here Jesus has just thrown all that out the window. And he said, you have come to do a work. What's more important? Verse 41, Roman rule allowed soldiers to press people into service to help them carry their equipment as they traveled. It was a law called compulsion. And he says, if somebody, challenge, or somebody tells you to go one mile, go with them two miles. You ever heard the saying, go the extra mile? Customer service 101. Go the extra mile. You know what I'm talking about? It came from here. And that's what it was talking about. If somebody requires something of you, give them more than what is minimally necessary. So when a Roman soldier would come and grab somebody and would give them their stuff... They could only ask them to go for a mile. And some people thought that that was because if they went more than a mile, then Rome really had to pay them after that point. They were considered a hired help. Some people think that they only did a mile because if you make somebody work more than a mile, they're going to hate you. And Rome didn't need all the people in its lands hating them. I think the reason is, is that because a mile is practical. Somebody asks you to carry your stuff for a mile. You're like, okay, you can walk back home in that time. You don't get too mad about it. But Jesus says, go with them the extra mile. 
So when we leave our pride behind and we're willing to give of ourselves, we leave the door open for the Holy Spirit to come in and do something awesome. I will tell you that in my life, the times that I have seen the Holy Spirit move the most are the times when I am doing something that does not serve my self-interest whatsoever. Volunteering at places, doing things for somebody, forgiving somebody that I should probably be upset with. That's when I've always seen the Holy Spirit do the most work. And the reason why is because that is not something that is of this world. And people see that. When somebody that has done you wrong sees you forgive them, it does something in them. When somebody who you owe something to, you settle whatever you owe them and then you go above and beyond, people see that. And so Jesus said to go an extra mile so that through your life, somebody will be invited to the Holy Spirit's moving and will, be, have, that, will have that door opened for the Holy Spirit to come in and do something in their life. So we love and we serve, not for those who have earned it, but for everybody. Paul tells us in his book in Romans that it was while we were sinners that Christ died. While we were still offensive to the law of God, we were still guilty of our sin. That is when Christ loved us enough that he died for us. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that the generosity of that gospel in your life is greater than the generosity of the world. And if your life has been saved and it operates through the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are to live and to operate above the world in which you live. That's why for us it doesn't matter if society says something's okay. It doesn't matter if the rest of the world says something is perfectly good and well. Because we're not the world's people, we are God's people. We love others the way that God loves. We forgive the way that God forgave us. And we live for God's truth the way that Jesus Christ came in the fullness to fulfill that and to make it a reality. So my challenge for you is this. If you have experienced the work of the gospel, we hear Jesus's urging here to reject any need for retribution or for uh, recovering our pride if we lose it. But then he tells us to go above and beyond even if the person has offended you. So my challenge for you is this. I've told you it's very easy to keep your nose clean as a Christian. But it is very hard to go above and beyond when we live in a society that tells us to take care of your own. So when you seek to be the church of Jesus Christ this week. Don't go out just trying to keep your nose clean. But how can you go above and beyond? 
What does it look like to go above and beyond in a community of faith? What does it look like to go above and beyond in your household, in your workplace? It's easy to keep our nose clean. But when we are willing to go above and beyond, that is when we let the Holy Spirit work within us. And that is when we live our lives for the fact or for the sake of the gospel so that other people can come to know the salvation that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for these Sunday school Bible stories that we can read time and time again and they don't lose life. They don't lose meaning. And God, they don't lose purpose. God, we thank you for an extravagant mercy that you showed us through your son, Jesus Christ. That when we were undeserving, you gave your life for us. And even now when we fall short, your mercy still extends to us. God, help us to hold to the truth of your law and your word. Not so that other people might see us and approve us. But God, that you might see us. That the evidence of the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives might push somebody else to believing in your son, Jesus Christ. God, as you loved us, let us love others extravagantly with excitement, knowing that even if we suffer, somebody might be saved. That even if we might lose, somebody might be redeemed. Now we thank you. We thank you in more ways than we could ever know, in more ways than we could ever understand, for more things than we could ever realize that we need it for. God, let us live our lives for your sake, for you are our God. We are your people. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.